Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Good morning. Community Christian Church, how's everybody doing this morning? Everybody thawed out by now? It's been a cold week, hasn't it? I feel like I'm just starting to get feeling back in my hands. It took a little bit. It's good to be in the house with you guys. If you're joining us online, thank you for joining us. Uh, If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Pastor Tyler. I'm our next-gen pastor here at CCC. So my team with kids, youth, young adult, we get to kind of lead next-gen ministry here, and it is truly, truly an honor. But to be here with you in big church, it's good to be here with you guys. I'm excited to open up the word with you guys and see what God has to say as we continue this series on the one in the mirror. And we're really diving into this Uh, passage of scripture in Mark chapter 12, looking at the words of Jesus, the golden rule, so to speak. And I want to look at it kind of in a big picture perspective. And then as we take that, I want to then zero back in on a beautiful, fruitful byproduct of doing this well. And I believe that one of the most beneficial parts of doing Mark chapter 12 well is community. And so I'm going to kind of give us a focus on that today, but before we do that, I want to zoom way out. I've learned that getting the roadmap from the top view is very, very important. I don't know about you guys, but most of our cars now have a GPS. You plug your phone in or something like that, and when you open it up, you have your little icon, and it's just straight lines and tells you which way to go. You don't really see the top view. The, the, uh, how we read maps, it's kind of a skill gone by. Does anybody still break out the paper map on road trips? Thank you. Thank a few of you. All right. I remember my dad growing up, we did a road trip out to South Dakota and he had to take out the map. We highlighted it and kind of penned out when we're going to stop for gas and kind of, but it's awesome because you can see the big picture. You need something at scale to see where you're going. I learned this lesson the hard way because before I was a pastor here, for a few years through college, I was interning or apprenticing under an evangelist, and we were traveling to Peru multiple times a year. And in Peru, we would go to these villages right along the Amazon River. And I learned very quickly that cell phone reception on the Amazon River is not a thing. (laughs) Go figure. There's not anything else out there other than trees and animals that want to hunt you and kill you, but uh, cell reception is not there. So when you get out there and we're trying to find these little villages or we're trying to find these places we're going to go and minister to, you have to have a map and a really good guide or else you're going to be living on that Amazon for a lot longer than you care to be. So there was a trip we went out there, and the guy I was apprenticing under, his uh, natural demeanor was a little bit shoot from the hip. And when you're traveling through the Amazon, it's not really the type of personality you want to be following when there's, like, piranhas in the water, something growling in the, in the wilderness, and snakes. I hate snakes. All of those things. So we get out there, and uh, we're out, we're taking this van, and we're supposed to go speak at a youth, uh, like a youth VBS type of thing, but it's way out in the jungle. 
And again, we're trying to find our way there. And thankfully, we had Pastor Jose, who was our guide. But what made me a little uneasy at first is as we start driving, and it's a lot like the roads, like before 75 got fixed, add it to like ice and snow, like the way how treacherous that felt sometimes, that's these Amazon roads. We're driving, and he goes, oh, I think I've seen that tree before. <laughs> Uh, that rock looks familiar. That's not the type of instruction you want to get. We had to get the map back out and look from the top and say, where we got to go? We got to get here. We're here. Here's how we get there. By the grace of God, we got there. And uh, it was a great uh, experience. We got to see God move in some lives of young people along the Amazon. But I learned a very good lesson that day, that if you have an end goal in mind, you have to be able to zoom out, see the big picture, to be able to map out the steps. You can't just take one step in front of the other because sometimes you find yourself going in circles. So today what I want to do is I want to take Mark chapter 12, 30 through 31, zoom out for a little bit, get this big picture, and then give us some marching orders of what the next steps of how we do this well and what that looks like. So let me set up this text for us. Mark chapter 12, 30 and 31. At this point in the book of Mark, Jesus is on his way to his death. He's given kind of his final teachings. There's a series of teachings, and I believe Jesus in his spirit knew that he was going to his crucifixion. He didn't necessarily know the day or the time yet per se, but I feel like he could sense it in his spirit. So we started to give these charges with very clear, heavy instruction. One of them was in a conversation with the Pharisees talking about the greatest commandment. And so Jesus, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, being led by God, he says that anything he says, he only says it because he first heard the Father. So that you know it's a really big deal. And so what I want to do is before we get to the second commandment that we've been focusing on, I actually want to zoom back out to the first one to give context. So let's look at this together. Mark chapter 12, 30 through 31. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second command is like this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. I want to put this thought out to you guys that if we want to love the one in the mirror well, we have to know how to love Jesus with our whole heart first. Amen. This foundation is the only sound base for loving ourselves well and therefore loving our neighbors well. It's the, there is no other foundation. The second commandment immediately falls apart when we try and do it in our own way. There's a reason Jesus put these things in this sequence, it's not on accident. And so I want us to focus for a second on commandment number one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's beautiful about this is that Jesus didn't make this up on the spot. He, this is a callback to a prayer that Israel would pray in the Old Testament, back in the book of Deuteronomy. And this prayer was called the Shema. Bible scholars, let's all do this together. Can we all say Shema? Shema. There you go. You know the Bible now. The Shema, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, it gives this prayer. And this is a prayer that the Israelites would pray twice a day. And there was a point to it. It wasn't just to do religious action. It was to constantly recalibrate their heart as they were surrounded by pagan, uh, multi-God religions around them and these nations trying to constantly pull them away from the one true God. 
And there was this prayer that they would use to kind of recenter themselves twice a day. And it was to refocus their heart. Now, what's so interesting about this is that when they would say, love the Lord, you got all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. At this point, medical science didn't entirely know what the heart did yet. They knew that it beat and it, it was essential for life, but they didn't really have a concept for veins and, and everything, how that all worked. I don't even know how it all works. I'm not a medical guy. I just know it's important. But the ancient Israelites, they had this concept that when they said heart, they meant the very core of yourself. Everything about you starts at the heart. And so God is to be completely loved totally because he alone is God and made that covenant with us. Because of his covenant, the Bible says because he loved us, we can then love him in return. That, that covenant means that we, can, we have to. It is our soul's longing to love God with our whole heart. Anytime we do anything but that, we are going to feel some level of need, some level of discontentment, because it's just not how God wired us. He meant for us to entirely love him. The best version of ourself to love is the one fully in love with him first. So let me break this down just to give a concept of why this prayer would say heart, mind, soul, and strength. The heart, it's the control center of the human, your absolute core. The soul, it's the self-conscious, the thought life. This is your will and your emotions. The mind is the intellectual thought capacity of a person, how you think. And then your strength is your body bringing it under discipline to love God through how you take care of your body. Now, we can't just acknowledge love for God as an intellectual statement, because I'm sure if we lined up everybody in this room and we had an accountant said, do you love God? Do you profess him to be uh, savior? Did he die on the cross? Did he rise from the dead? We would all probably intellectually say, yes, of course, I believe Jesus did this. I believe he did it to die for sins. I believe he did this. I'm sure you could actually ask a lot of people in the world and intellectually they would say that. But where the breakdown is, is that even hell can agree with the statement that Jesus was a real person, died on a cross, and says he did it for sins. The difference between what hell believes and what God has put in us is the ability to then make him Lord. To love him with our whole heart means that this heart that beats within us, everything about us, is presented to him and says, God, this is fully yours. And in doing that, God says, now watch what I can do through you. I'm going to show you how to love that version of you really well. And the byproduct of that is you're going to love people around you because you are just full of love. Your cup is overflowing, King David says in the Psalms. Because we put that heart, the core of us, before a perfect, good, and loving Father. Amen. The version of us that we want to love is not one that we can manufacture and put the pieces together. It's the one that has a heart fully given to God. That's when it's the most pure, good, holy, and it can be used by God. So to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, this is the first commandment and it's because it's the priority. Every other act of obedience that we will talk about from here after will only fall, will fall empty unless we get number one right. So I just wanted to set the table for us really quick. 
that the first thing we can do is love God really well. And maybe you're in the room and you don't know what that means or you don't know if you have made that choice. I'm gonna implore you to be prayerful through the rest of this sermon that you consider where your heart's at, that you might say, God, I think I've given you 25%, 50%, 90%, but God, today I'm giving you 100%. And when that happens, friends, watch what God does as a result. That is his favorite gift he could ever receive, is your heart. He died for it. He sent his son that it would be accessible back to him. But he's not going to take it from you. He's asking that you offer it. But then we get to this second commandment, and Jesus says this is just as great, but he says it in order to display priority, but this is incredibly important because now we're getting into the nature and the atmosphere of the kingdom of heaven. It is to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. This, again, is not Jesus' own new words. This is, again, a callback to the Old Testament. And this is, again, because God was setting up a culture back in ancient Israel after they left Egypt and God was establishing them as a nation separate from the world around them. He says, I'm going to put principles that are unique from the rest of the world. They're unique because they're from heaven. And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. God was setting up something that was meant to look different than the world around them. Back in ancient Israel, and right now, 2024 in Sterling Heights, Michigan, this golden rule concept lives very contrary to the world. Though it may be professed as a very uh, good thing, I believe a lot of non-Christians would say loving your neighbor as yourself is an admirable thought. But we know, as we just saw because of commandment one, it will always fall short or eventually get self-serving until it is fully surrendered to God. It, it has to go in that order. So, the bottom line, what is Jesus trying to say through these two commandments? That to love, that love for your neighbor as ourself, Leviticus 19, 18, grows only out of total heart surrender and love for God. They are inseparable. These two concepts cannot exist outside of each other. Friends, I want us as community Christian church, as a body of believers, I want us as the big C church, to be known for these two things really well. We can do one and we can do the other, but we have to do them together. They are inseparable in the eyes of Jesus. And as Jesus lived and as Jesus walked, that's exactly what we're trying to model, correct? We want to look at, we can't just look at the words, we have to look at the life he lived and Jesus modeled the loving God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself as good as anybody ever will. He was perfect at it. So in watching his deeds and in watching his actions and then also studying his words, we can glean that heart for ourselves. This is the beauty of it. When we do commandment one well, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, that's salvation. That's saying, God, here is my heart. That's you saying, God, you're Lord of my life. Number two, loving yourself and loving your neighbor, that's the sanctification part. That's Jesus purifying, working out our heart day by day, taking all the gunk and the junk and the stuff that makes us human, and every day saying that, I have new mercies today, walk this out. I have new mercies today, walk this out. 
My grace is enough. The arms of my grace didn't run short Monday because it was a bad day. Tuesday, you're on your own. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And so now he's commissioning us to walk in a process of purifying our heart through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life that we would then do commandment two really well. Not just really well, but so well that the world has to take notice. That was Jesus' whole message. That we wouldn't just be talkers of the word, we would be doers of the word. This is a doing commandment. Commandment one gets done in the secret place here at church. It's a beautiful process. Commandment two gets done when we walk out of these doors into the real world, in our life groups, in our community, in relationship with one another, when it's a little harder and not as pretty and polished. That's why the Bible says that iron sharpens iron. It's a difficult process. It's a refining thing, but it should be a process that hones us, sharpens us, and makes us more like Jesus. And when we do that well, the world takes notice. So these greatest commandments that Jesus displayed for us, they summarize two basic responsibilities of the law and communicate the core core of God's desire for our lives. The core is that our hearts would be towards God and that our heart would be towards people. The thread is our heart. The thread is our heart. So, let me ask this big question then. What do we do once we've given this heart to the Lord? We've said yes, we said, God, do this work in us. What do we do with this transformed, spirit-empowered heart? What's step two? This is where I want us to take the map, zoom in, and we're gonna start getting some instructions now of how to do this. I believe that because Jesus was teaching this right before his crucifixion, eventual death, resurrection, and then later his ascension into heaven, he was preparing the future church. He told Peter that upon this rock he would build his church. He said, Peter, I need you to get these lessons down really well because what community Christian church is gonna be a few thousand years later, I need them to understand it well because you led it well. And so here we are today gleaning these lessons and we walk it out and we see the, one of the most pure examples of the fruit of doing the golden rule well in Acts chapter two, verse 42 through 47. This is the first church. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He's been taken up by the spirit and now it is up to the body of believers to walk out the gospel in the world from then on. And we have these words of Jesus reverberating in our hearts. The apostles are standing there and they are in deep prayer. The day of Pentecost comes. They are filled with spirit-empowered boldness. They start preaching the gospel. Thousands are getting saved. But when you talk about thousands, that's thousands of people. Real people. And if you've been around real people long enough, we can have really good church services and then still have some conflict. Maybe you guys live in perfect harmony, never clashed with anybody, you're perfect Christians. But I can promise you that even this first church had to work some things out. And the process of doing that, there's practicals, but the essence of it is continued surrender of our heart to the Lord. And so we see Luke describing this picture of the church Uh, in Acts chapter two, verse 42, and I believe it is truly the byproduct or the fruit 
of loving ourselves and loving our neighbors really well. It's a community of people who gave their whole heart to Jesus. Let's read this passage together and let's take a look at what this looked like. Starting in verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All of the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This word fellowship has a really interesting translation in the Greek. It's the word koinonia. Let's do another one. We said Shema earlier. Let's do another one. Koinonia. Koinonia. There you go. Bible scholars all across the room. Koinonia. This word is translated to the word fellowship, but its meaning is so rich. It means association, communion, active participation, and it means to share in something bigger than themselves. I love that it means active participation. This is not passive fellowship. It is intentional choice made by the people who are a part of the koinonia, part of the fellowship. So what I love is that this passage starts by saying that they devoted themselves. And if we could just pause on that thought for a second. Devoted themselves has a very interesting connotation because it's implying that they were not dragged there or needed to be convinced of regularly that this was important. I believe we only get to that place, we only get to the point of understanding that community of the believers, the gathering of the saints is important when we all walk with the same heartbeat. We only get to everything in common because of Jesus. As soon as we get one layer outside of Jesus, we probably all differ. But everything in common, meaning everything that is Jesus. And they rallied to that point, and they did not need to be dragged, convinced, coerced, or bribed to get back there because they saw the value that was being added to their lives and what God was doing through them. So much so that the end of that passage, verse 47, says that the Lord added to their number annually, no, daily, those who were being saved. This thing had so much potency to it that every day they gathered together, people were getting saved. This is the power of what a spirit-filled community, a heart-surrendered church can look like, that it doesn't just take a really well-spoken sermon from this stage or beautiful worship led by our team. It is us living in community, living a fruitful life, fully surrendered to God. And in that, people say, oh, I need that. That feels different. There's something that the world has tried to give me that doesn't taste good, that feels good. And then when they get that sense, it's the spirit tugging on their heart, they walk in, they hear the truth that is God wants to be Lord of your life and he is the most perfect, capable hands to hold it, and they surrender. It's the most beautiful thing. It says that heaven throws a party when one sinner turns to be a saint. Daily. I don't believe that word was added on accident. I believe it's meant to show the reverberating earthquake power that comes when a community of people are aligned in heart. 
that when we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in the authority of heaven and seeing the world impacted day after day after day. I love too that when it says that they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, they also say to prayer, but the most literal translation of that is not to prayer as in the act, it is to the praying or to the prayers. It's an action, meaning it implies that it is not just the prayer at home, it's the gathering together to pray. What I love about that very unique distinction is that it's kind of a given, we should pray at home. There is a place for the secret place at home to pray and to gather. But there is a power when the people of God come together and they go to pray. There is a power in united heart, in the breaking of bread, to the uh, dedication, to the teaching of the word. If we do these things well, as a community, not just Sunday and executing a service beautifully, but the Monday life group, the Wednesday youth group, the Friday night young adult gathering, the pickleball life group. When we do this thing really well, even in those environments that may feel unconventional to the average churchgoer, that is still the Lord's ability to add to their number daily those who are being saved. One of, my, one of my good friends in life literally got saved in a Buffalo Wild Wings talking about fantasy football watching a game. And here's the thing. It's because up to that point he would say, I didn't think Christians could watch football. And this is not to bring football into it. It's just to say that God can use every environment that when believers get together, God can move. And he will use any means necessary. And it's not just people with this mic on their head. It is to use your life, use your community. I'm gonna hit just a couple more things before we wind down here. I love that everyone was filled with awe, that nothing was routine about the gathering. There was an expectation. That awe is a sign of reverence. That meant when they gathered together, they expected that God would move. Not out of entertain me, Lord, Show me something. Because that was the heart of the Pharisees saying, Jesus, give us a miracle. That's not what they were asking for. It was they came and they knew that they knew that they knew that when the, when the saints gather, God moves. Whatever that needed to look like. And they were in awe of it. They gathered together, had everything in common, not in terms of their interests, likes, and uh, social preferences, but in their core being. That commandment number one, that their whole heart, when you get enough people in the room that believe that their whole heart has been given to the Lord, watch out. Hell is on the run when those people start to pray, when those people start to gather. And that's what I want this church to be. I believe we are marching towards it. We have been that for 30 plus years and we will continue to be that. But we cannot forsake the gathering together. Because, again, there is power in that community. We see it in the first church. So now what do we do? We see this modeled. We saw the big picture. God wants our heart. That transformed heart leads to loving ourselves and loving others really well. A byproduct of that is community. So now we need a step. 
As a church, we believe that one of the best ways to do that is to take this big gathering and break it up into small gatherings that you might get to know people. Find your people, your crew, the people you can lock arms with and do this life thing with them. Highs and lows, you're arm in arm and you're doing it together. For us, a way we do that is through our life groups. And this is what I'd, I'd ask all of you to consider. There are life groups of all interests, uh, whether it's a, an activity, it's a Bible study, it's relationship, it's social, whatever it is, the goal of it is not to fill your calendar because all of us are guilty of doing that plenty. The goal of it is that you would find the people who look like this Acts 2 church and you walk arm in arm with, you help raise your kids with, you help do life with, you go through hell and back with because life is that hard. You walk in life with these people. It can be the people on the pickleball court, it can be the people in your Bible study. I just saw a beautiful move of God Friday night at our young adult gathering. We had over 70 young adults pack into the room and we worshiped God together and we saw a generation, a whole age group of people say, I just want God and I want people who love God. That rally, that's all it required. There was nothing else than that. We had nachos too, but I don't think it was just the nachos. I think it really was the gathering of the saints and people wanting something raw and real that was God. These life groups are so intentional. There are groups that have saved my life. This past summer, I, it wasn't, I guess, an official life group, but I'm making it one, uh, was a group that started running. I'd never run before in my life. The last time I tried to run, I was running with Pastor Dave at a, a running group gathering, and he kicked my butt for three miles. <laughs> he dragged me along very graciously. And then last February, Aaron Maddock and Dave Cummings kind of pressured me into running a race, and I was very fat and very not ready to run a race. <laughs> but through the context of community, encouragement, check-ins, we got to a point that that summer in September ran a race together. And it wasn't just the sake of running a race, it was that we did it together. We road tripped down, Jeff Maddock was in there with us, the four of us, we drive down together, we get hotel rooms, we run this race, and we cross the finish line, and we have this moment together. And it was beyond just accomplishing a goal. There was almost a spiritual high that came out of it because it just felt like believers doing life, accomplishing something greater together. This is just one little example of what that could look like. Now, for you, it might not be running a race, but it might be, I want to know the word a little bit more. We have Bible studies, men's and women's Bible studies. We have young adult Bible studies, youth Bible studies. You just want to get around people you can ask the tough questions to, chew on the word together. Maybe for some of you, and I know, trust me, I get how this can be, you just feel like you don't really have a lot of friends. I get how that happens. Life gets so busy, all of a sudden, you haven't really gone out with anybody in a while. You have the kids keep you busy and all that. Join a, so a social group. Find people that love God, that aren't going to be a liability when you go out with them. I'm sure we all have friends that you kind of have to keep on a short leash when you go out because you just never quite know. <laughs> Find people you don't have to worry about. Find your people. I'll, I'll wrap up with this story and the band can come on at this moment. The testimony of my dad Right after my parents had split up, my dad found himself at this fork in the road moment. And he had an opportunity to make a very poor decision 
that would kind of lead his life down one path. But then at his work, he met a guy who was in a life group at a church. And as my dad was wrestling with this bad decision, God sent this man into my dad's work at the cubicle next to him, and he got an invite, not to church, but to a life group, a men's life group. And my dad told me the story recently that he said that he got in the car and he had intentions to go and make the bad decision, and it was the same night as the men's life group, to the point he's backing out of the driveway not, not knowing which one he's going to do. And then he made the choice, I believe prompted by the Holy Spirit, to go to the life group where he rededicated his life to the Lord. I don't think the fact that it was not a church service but a life group is on accident. It's because sometimes the big crowd of people, it's just sometimes hard to connect or to fully show your heart or to fully be transparent. And sometimes it just takes a few guys that can just see who you really are and getting that raw and real that pushes you right over the edge and says, I gotta, get, I gotta do something about this. And you give your heart to the Lord. That's my dad's story. And that story is a story of legacy to me and to my family and everything that will come after me. And I believe it's because of that moment God led him to a life group. Now, the life group isn't the Savior. Jesus is. But a group of Jesus people gathering together in a home, breaking bread, dedicating themselves to the teaching of God and to prayer, it not only changed a life, it changed a family tree. What if the group that you are hemming and hawing about joining or you think you're too busy for or you're just reluctant because you don't know if you'll know anybody, it might be awkward, is the one that God is poking and prodding your heart to saying, but watch what I can do through it. Let me wrap us up here. Mark 12, 30-31 gives us the steps of how to give God our heart and then to walk that out in love for ourselves and love for people. But now, it's our turn to decide if we're going to do it. Jesus gives the commandment, but he's not going to force it on you. There comes a moment, and I would venture to say, just knowing this church well enough, a lot of us, maybe you've walked with the Lord for some time, but you would know if you really did a self-evaluation, you're at maybe, maybe 50% of your heart given to God or something less than 100, whatever it is. There's no judgment here. I have to make that prayer every day. But there is this prayer of re-surrender that sets the table, sets the foundation of everything else we talked about today. And I want us to make sure that we end where we started, that it is only because of Jesus. It is only because of Jesus. So consider today where your heart's at.
Does it love God with your whole heart, whole mind, whole soul, all of your strength? Or is there a little more we could give? A little more surrender? I'm going to pray and we're going to just sing a song that kind of echoes that thought of re-surrendering our heart to the Lord. And I'd encourage you that whether this is a worship moment for you or it's truly a prayer and a confession, it's all powerful before God and he will use it. But I encourage you to do it intentionally, keeping your attention on it just for a few more minutes. Let's pray and let's prepare our heart for that moment. God, you are so good. We declared that as a church earlier today, and it is so true. We're so thankful for you being a good God, worthy of holding our hearts with all stability, all strength, and all faithfulness. Now, Lord, I ask that with my heart and every heart in this room and online, that we would give it to you every last ounce of it, God, it is yours. Would you unite us so clearly that the world has to take notice that as you prayed that it would be on earth as it is in heaven, total love and worship and adoration towards you. May that reverberate through this room right now that we would have hearts of total love